In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. As we begin our prayer this afternoon, we can think of Pope Benedict Emeritus, who turns 94 today. As you may know, he was baptized on the very same day that he was born. He was born like early in the morning, and a little bit early, a little bit later, a few hours that day, he was baptized. And he gave thanks to his parents for that, because he was born, and then immediately he was born of the Holy Spirit. And a few years ago, on, in 2012, he said some words on that birthday about how truly good life is as a gift. And we see life as a gift. Even in front of the hardships and difficulties that we may have to endure. He said, can we really say that life is a gift? Especially when people suffer and there are hardships and some people suffer quite grievously. He says, it is a problematic gift if, if it is left to itself. Bi biological life is in itself a gift, but it's surrounded by a great question. It becomes a true gift only if, along with it, we are given a promise that is stronger than any evil that could threaten us. If it is, he said, immersed in a power that ensures that it is good to be human, that there will be good for this person, no matter what the future brings. When we see a little child, and we see it gurgling without a clue of what surrounds it, we can say, in some mysterious way, that this is good, because it is in, immersed in a power that ensures that it is good to be human. And that's why he says that that's why with birth is associated rebirth, the certitude that truly it is good to be alive, because the promise is stronger than evil. See, that's, that's why it's good to be alive, because there's a promise inherent in the fact that we are born. There's a promise of good. doesn't mean we have the promise right away realized, but there is a promise. He says, this is the meaning of rebirth by water and the Holy Spirit, to be immersed in the promise that only God can make. That is, it is good that you exist and you can be certain of whatever comes. Excuse me, you can be certain of that, whatever comes. With this assurance, I, will, I was able to live 
reborn of, by water and the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful way in which he couches his just his very fact of being born, even though he was completely unaware of what was going on. Like that story in the paper about this little six-year-old boy who slept through the sinking of the Titanic. He was in first class, and uh, at uh, two in the morning, or whatever time it was in the morning, the, the Titanic hit the iceberg, and everybody was scrambling for the, for the lifeboats, and he just hung on to his mother and, and slept the whole way through. He was told as they went out, we're going to look at the stars. Oh, good, we're going to look at the stars. And he fell back asleep. And he only woke up literally hours later as, as the sun was rising, floating in a life raft as other boats were coming to his rescue, he and the few survivors that were left among the 1,500 that had perished. Since he was a little child, he was assured a, a, a life raft or a lifeboat. Pope Benedict was baptized, strangely enough, he was baptized on Holy Saturday. And Holy Saturday is the day you don't have baptisms. I mean, generally speaking, you have no sacraments because Christ is in the tomb. And so you're waiting for the resurrection. And there's no alleluia. Now there is because we're in Easter. But then at the Holy Saturday, there's no alleluia. He says, we're still in the darkness of the tomb. And that's the day he was born, when it was dark. When Christ is in the tomb and there are no sacraments. But in those days you could have the Easter vigil early, like way early. Here we have the Easter vigil like maybe at 8 o'clock or something on Saturday. But there you could have it even earlier, like in the morning. He says, this image of him being born on Holy Saturday, right, and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit in baptism on that day, when you can't say hallelujah, when it's still, so to speak, dark, he says, is a, is a powerful image. He says, it seems to me that this singular paradox, this singular anticipation of light in a day of darkness could almost be an image of the history of our times. On the one hand, there's still the silence of God and His absence. But, in the resurrection of Christ, there's already the anticipation of the yes of God. And on the basis of this anticipation, we live, and through the silence of God, we hear Him speak. And through the darkness of His absence, we glimpse His light. The anticipation of the resurrection in the middle of an evolving history is the power that points out the way to us and helps us to, to go forward. In some ways, we have to apply that also now during the pandemic. To a certain sense, in a certain sense, we could say we're in, like in the Holy Saturday, we're in the darkness with this pandemic. And now, as I understand, we're going to have another announcement, some more lockdowns, closures. And maybe they say that there may even be a ban on interprovincial uh, traveling. Maybe they're going to ban, you know, blinking your eyes. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, don't blink your eyes. Don't blink. You might get COVID. 
I mean, uh, you know, I know there are a lot of people in the in in the ICUs and stuff, and uh, they're all overwhelmed, and there's more cases, and and we have to protect these people. I understand that, of course, we do. But in the middle of all this darkness, we have to perceive light. We have to have hope. So now, we are indeed in the Easter season, and we must, we must see where we are marching forward. Maybe during this time, if we are marching forward by really improving our life, by improving the way we pray, if we get a glimpse of the light of the resurrection, just by the way we pray, by the way we interact with others, but especially by the way we judge people and the events through the supernatural lens of the resurrection. Through the supernatural lens of the resurrection. That is, beyond mere human calculations. Judging things through the, through the lens of the resurrection does not mean we deny the reality of evil. But we trust in the, in the promise that despite the evil, God will be faithful to his promise. And perhaps uh, well, a way of uh, at least seeing this is in today's Mass from the Gospel of uh, St. John, which is a passage here in chapter 6 about the multiplication of loaves and fish. And it's, uh, it's a beautiful passage because, well, it tells us about how the... the the, the Lord had decided to go across the Sea of Galilee. There was a large crowd seeking to go behind him or to follow him. And there's like intense pressure now for Jesus after the beheading of John the Baptist. So he crosses over the other side. He's trying to escape the, the dominion or the, the possibility of the jurisdiction of Herod. But this large crowd follows him. And he, so instead he goes up to the mountain to form his disciples to be in a quiet place. And, um, you know, St. John's Gospel has, let's say, less miracles than the other synoptics, than Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. But the ones that do appear there always appear in the context of the mystery of Christ. Like, he's not just recounting a miracle for no reason. Like, they always have a, a greater meaning. And in this case, he, he will recount the the story or the, the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish just before he's going to uh, talk about the, the account of the bread of life discourse in chapter 6 where Jesus says, you know, I'm the bread of life. And, you know, he who does not eat me does not have life. You know, if you want to have life, you must eat my flesh. I, I am the bread of life. That's that's the the Eucharistic discourse that he that is famous and that that sort of reveals his presence in the Eucharist. So as a prelude to all that, he describes this miracle. And we are told in John that he, well, the Passover was near, and Jesus raised his eyes and saw a large crowd coming to him. A large crowd, you can imagine. He raised his eyes. He sees the large crowd. This, this phrase, he raised his eyes. Well, that, um, of course, 
on one level it means that he looked off into the distance, but when he raised his eyes, I like that phrase because it seems to underline the fact that he's able to look with his eyes, his divine eyes, or well, he's humanized, but with divine capacity to understand, he's able to see inside the soul of each one of those people, those 5,000 people. He could understand their predicaments, he could feel their personal situations, he had compassion for their predicaments, compassion for their hunger. He was not looking at them as a distant observer, kind of calculating the statistical possibility of whether or not they'd go away or of feeding them. It's as though he truly felt their low blood pressure. He felt faint for them because some of them were tired and hungry and they felt faint. Maybe he experienced the migraines of the diabetics or the grumbling of stomachs or even the irritability that hunger sometimes provokes. All families know the feeling that happened just before supper or in the early early evening before supper. It's a probably a touchy time for everybody before dinner hits the table you know uh, you can smell the food but you can't eat yet and you're tired and you're grumbling and they call it it's prime time for getting hangry <laughs> hangry right not hungry but hangry because you're getting angry because you know you know you're at a low ebb and you <laughs> you want to eat right? and maybe a lot of people were hangry and in fact the way Peter, or rather Philip and Andrew and Peter react to this problem is that they can't figure out what to do. You know, there's too many people here. What can we just, you know, you can hear it in their tone of voice, in their moodiness, uh, that this is outside of their control. And they're viewing this problem of all this massive crowd with human calculations. They're looking at it in terms of how many funds do we have? Andrew says, this boy has a few barley loaves. What's that for so many? You just see him going, you know, what's that? This is nothing. Look at all these people. Imagine if, if Lincroft and Ernstcliff were surrounded by like tons of people. You know, and uh, they all wanted supper. You know. So Jesus, of course, wants to resolve the problem. He wants to feed them. Because remember, he wants to prepare the bread of life, the discourse on the bread of life. Now, we know that feeding the hungry is a corporal work of mercy, and we too are invited to attend to that. And, um, you know, whom do I feed? Do I feed the hungry? Uh, Am I supposed to resolve world hunger? Remember those glaring words of our Lord, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. You gave me no food. I'm told that every day many children die of hunger-related causes in the world. I don't know how many thousands, but uh, or or if there's thousands, but quite a few. It used to be way more. And well, can we say to God, "Well, that's not my problem. You know, they're they're not my kids," or you know, we can't simply see them as mere statistics. Nor should we just feel guilt either. But maybe we can do something 
uh, you know, some people help in a food bank, other people help shut-ins. They can bring a home-cooked meal to somebody. But it's clear from the exchange that Jesus wants to help them, and, but he wants the apostles to use their resources, and even if they're meager resources, but that he will do the rest. He will do the rest. And the same thing will be true in the future. They do what they can, he will do the rest. It's kind of like that image of the promise. Right? Jesus says, okay, you have your life, it will be surrounded by, by problems, but I promise you eternal life. It's what Pope Benedict mentioned. We, don't, we can't avoid difficulties and hardships, but we can rely on his promise to be reborn of the Spirit. And what's interesting in this account is that the beginning of the account, when, when they all say we can't do anything, we just have two fish, and these, well, you know, we can't do anything, um, Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were reclining. Right? Took the loaves, gave thanks, gave it to the apostles. It's, the words are very similar to the institution narratives of the Eucharist that we see in the Synoptics, that we see in St. Paul, this idea of he took the bread, gave thanks, gave it to the apostles. There's, a, there's an obvious parallel between the two. And like in Mark, he says, uh, well, Mark says this also, right? That it's, it's a hint to the Blessed Eucharist. So this indicates that the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish, in addition to being an expression of Jesus' mercy towards the needy and those people that were hungry, is a symbol of the Eucharist. It's not the Eucharist itself, but it is a, a symbol indicating that we are really fed and fulfilled by the Blessed Eucharist if we receive it in faith. But really, this miracle is like a trailer for a movie. Right? You get a taste of the essence of the movie, of the plot, but the plot and the, 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 the main story is not given away. That's why they make trailers so good. They make you want to see the rest of the movie. Right? And you can make a great trailer, but the movie is bad. You know? But, uh, you know, they show all the best parts or something like that. Right? Uh, but here, he just gives you a trailer. Well, and we know, of course, from this passage that the the miracle, the effect of the miracle was tremendous. All those human calculations, they didn't think they could do it. They didn't think they had enough. With the arithmetic or the mathematics of God, there's always a surplus. Because we're told that there are uh, baskets with fragments that are that were more than they could eat. God always gives more than we can eat. There's food left over. It's an image of the generosity of God when we are open to Him. Now, there's no denying that Jesus used his divine power. And people, of course, when they saw that, they were, it says here, this is truly the prophet, the one who is to come into the world. They were very impressed. 
when when they said that this is truly the prophet, what, what were they saying? What what did they mean by that? Well, they thought of Moses, who gave their forefathers the manna in the desert when they were starving, and so they woke up and they saw all this manna on the ground, and Moses had said that he would that a new prophet would come, a new Moses would come, and. And so these people are saying, well, maybe this is the new Moses or the new prophet that Moses has promised because he's giving us real bread. This is probably way better than the manna anyway that Moses gave. So they thought, well, maybe Jesus could be our, like our political leader. He will be like a, a king. He will be like a messianic king, a kind of military leader who will feed his troops and inaugurate a political kingdom that would do away with the Roman power. That's what they were thinking. They had eaten, and they liked that. And then we were told, since Jesus knew that they were going to come to carry him off, to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain alone. You know, so you can imagine what a disappointment. He didn't say, yeah, let's do it. Let's, I'm going to become your king. No, he just withdrew. He saw into their hearts... And he saw their worldly ambitions. And for Jesus, this kind of provoked a kind of, I guess you could call it a kind of repugnance. He didn't, he didn't want worldly ambitions. Even Pilate imagined, you know, are you, are you a king? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a human kingdom. And yet their fervor went kind of was like a viral video that goes all over the place. And, and uh, they were offering them a crown that they would make him their king. Just like, just like Satan did when he was in the desert. You know, he, says, he said, you know, you, if, if you worship me, I will make you king. But Jesus just leaves. He goes into the mountain. His real throne will be the cross. So, it's at that moment, that's what Fulton Sheen suggests, that doubts began to enter into Judas's mind about Jesus. That's where he started having doubts. Because he thought, oh, well, let's, let's take opportunity, let's, take, let's rise up, let's do this. This is our moment. But instead of taking the crown, Jesus just takes off. He knows his only crown will be the crown of thorns. Well, as I hear these words, Lord, these words of yours as you leave, I now realize that ultimately you want to reign in my heart. I want you to be my king, but not a human king, not human power. It means I have to die to human glory, human power, human recognition, or seeing everything really through human vision. Yet sometimes I'm really attached to it. I don't want to have the same reaction as Judas and see things through that kind of human prism where I get overly focused on what they think of me, if they like me, if uh, all that. No, that's, that's not what Jesus wants from us. 
So I want to choose the right throne, Lord, the one from which you will reign and from which you will rise. That's what it means ultimately to embrace the cross. It ultimately means to embrace that promise that Pope Benedict spoke about. And uh, so let, let us pray in particular today for Pope Emeritus, Pope Benedict Emeritus, who is 94. And let us particularly pray that there, there always be a unity between him and the Pope, the, the Pope Francis, that there, that nobody, any, any attempt to rank the two or, or put them together, anything like that, like this one is better than this or that, or, or rank any Pope as, as, he, as Pope Benedict's personal secretary said, it's, it's not appropriate to rank Popes. One is better than the other or something. A pope is a Pope is a Pope, and they're different. One is more intellectual, one is more vivacious, one is more of a backslapper. It doesn't matter. They're a pope. Of course they're going to be different. Of course they're going to be different. We have to be united and pray for them. Let's ask our Blessed Mother to give us a true desire to let Jesus reign in our hearts, even if it means that he is reigning from the cross. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.